We turn to the reading of the Word. A little different this morning, there'll be a series of short readings from the Old Testament, which may be easier to listen to than read along with, but you may be able to do both. The anointing of a prophet, priest, and king, and then the anointing baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. Let's stand together. Beginning at 1 Kings in chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, we have the anointing of a prophet. The Lord is giving instructions to Elijah. Elijah, after God revealed himself to Elijah to encourage him in his distress. Beginning at verse 13, the Lord hears, Elijah hears the Lord's voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria, and you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Then we turn to a priest in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 8. Aaron and his sons consecrated, beginning at verse 10. Also Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all its utensils and the laver and its base to consecrate them. And he poured out some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And then from 1 Kings chapter 1, the anointing of a king. And here, a king anointed by a priest. So Zadok the priest, 1 Kings 1, 38. Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Carathites, the Pelathites, went down and had Samuel ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. And Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And we turn to the New Testament our prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, at his baptism. Chapter 3, and we will read verses 21 and 22. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, You are my beloved Son, in you... I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray together. Lord our God, we ask now that you would send forth your light and truth, that you would bless us by your holy word, that you would send your spirit, Lord, even as you did long ago upon your servant, or that you would fill us to give help in preaching, that we might believe understand, and echo back your glory in praise forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You probably know I was driving around yesterday and I noticed this, that there were people apparently voting 
all over South Carolina. We had a primary, and I noticed church parking lots and other more public buildings filled with people coming and going. And I actually called up my brother-in-law, Nick, to ask him how this all works. I have to confess, I've been a citizen for only a few years. I've never, ever voted in a primary. And I also have to confess I didn't. Um, but I do vote in elections, and I think it's important. Uh, we have a great privilege as being citizens uh, of a country where we have some way to participate in choosing leaders, and that's a mercy of the Lord, and one that we should pray over and think about carefully. But that made me think about the fact that it's an election year, and if it's an election year that next January there's going to be that enduring symbol in American history of a transfer of power. Somebody else will be in the seat of the chief executive. Somebody else will be sitting at that desk at the Oval Office. Uh, somebody else will be serving as president. And what's interesting about this is that there's a moment before where they're not the president, and then there's a moment afterwards where somebody is the president. And there is this sharp division, and you know what that moment is. It's the inauguration, where the nation watches, and an oath of office is taken. And before that, unless there's somebody who's continuing on in the presidency, but if there's a changeover before that, that person is not the president, and afterwards they are. They are invested with that office. And we recognize this to be very significant. It wasn't too long ago in uh, Britain, there was a coronation of a king after a very long reign of Queen Elizabeth. And before, um, actually he was already the king upon the death of his mother, but there was a moment in time where he wasn't and he was. And it's the beginning of something new and different. The baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ serves as a significant moment in the life of our Savior where he, his person does not change, but his public office is declared to the world in his baptism by the Father and the activity of the Holy Spirit. It is the public inauguration of Jesus Christ, especially as the mediator king. The moment recounted in all four Gospels, that's important. The four Gospels, you remember, are like different camera angles. We all have phones, and we, you often see on the news that there's some event, and there's people start and stop that recording at different times from different angles, and it sometimes can even look like different things. But if we carefully piece it together, we get multiple views of the same thing. And when the Gospels all include uh, language about one particular event, that's that's a significant matter. It's something that's important. And the baptism of Jesus is one that's discussed in all four Gospels, just like the cross and the empty tomb. The baptism of Jesus is something that perhaps you haven't thought much about. It usually comes like it does in the Gospel of Luke in a period of just a few verses. But those verses actually recount some of the most remarkable supernatural events in human history. You have our Lord Jesus Christ, as I preached last week, in the mystery of God's providence, appearing on the stage of history, having traveled from Nazareth to the Jordan to be baptized by John. 
intentionally turning from his private life to his public office. We have Jesus Christ who is the eternal Son of God, the God-man. And then we have this remarkable moment that children, if you've heard this story, you would never forget the Holy Spirit, Luke says, in bodily form like a dove, descending and, as it were, alighting upon, resting upon Jesus Christ. What does that mean? And then we have the Father speaking. He spoke to the crowds, this is my beloved Son in whom I am pleased. He also spoke to His Son, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The voice of God, like at Sinai long ago, inbreaking in history. As a matter of fact, Luke says, what was happening is that heaven was opened to earth. In a few verses, a recording of a supernatural scene. But we might ask some questions. Why a baptism? What is actually happening here? And why would Jesus need to be baptized? You see baptisms here. and Children, you know I often say this, that it's washing. It's a simple picture of washing. That you're a sinner and that you need to be washed. Your sins need to be washed away. You need to be cleansed. Why Jesus? He never sinned. Did He need to be cleansed? No, He didn't. Why was He participating in what John the Scriptures call a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And why does the Spirit of God appear in this moment, in this form? Not only that we know it happened, but why does it happen this way? And then the Word from heaven. What is this declaration? What is it that the Father Himself speaks in human history concerning His Son? What does it say about the Father and the Son and together about the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So we study the baptism of Jesus Christ from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, and seek by God's grace to, to get help with our questions, to get answers to these questions, to know what the Scriptures teach. The broader scene is what we're going to look at. A little bit of review from last week. We're going to look at the broader scene, and then we're going to zoom in to the narrow scene of the baptism itself. But to understand the moments captured in verses 21 and 22, you should have the whole of the thing in your heart and mind. You should have the whole before we look at the parts. The chapter begins with, and this is important, the whole world. It's the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate as governor. We have the Roman Empire existent, and that brings to mind Caesar and the whole spread of the Roman Empire representing the entirety of the world. Then we have the rulers of Israel, Annas, Annas and Caiaphas' son-in-law. We're getting narrower to the history of Israel. And we also saw that we have in them the present functioning kings and priests. Herod and Pontius Pilate, Annas and Caiaphas. This is the boots on the ground reality of the broader world, the narrower experience of Israel in that broader world. And they do not have, this is important, a king after David's line. They have foreign kings and they do not have godly priests and there is but one prophet in the land, John the Baptist, apparently at this time. John the Baptist then has a preparatory ministry. He emerges on the scene in these times, in the wilderness of Judea, near the Jordan, preaching the doctrine of repentance. 
Turn from sin. Why? Because he's preparing the way of the Lord. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. He is paving a highway for the appearance of the Lord himself, the Lord who will rend the heavens and descend, Isaiah chapter 61. God himself who will come and appear in human history. The road that he's paving, as it were, is from the wilderness into Israel and aimed, as it were, for the temple itself, Zion, the city of God. The way he's paving the road, remember, is by the spiritual preparation of the hearts of Israel for the coming of the Lord. The Lord is coming. The salvation of God is coming. The great Old Testament hope is about to be realized. The Lord will come suddenly to his temple, Micah, or rather Malachi, and then Micah, the Lord is coming. Isaiah, the Lord is coming. Isaiah 40 and 64. What John is preaching is that there is about to be a revelation of the astounding holiness, glory, and power of God himself. And the road again that he's preparing is what? The spiritual preparation of the hearts of Israel. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The presence and coming of the holy brings an emergency condition to Israel. Their hearts need to be prepared by word and spirit for the uh, uh, presence, appearance, and glory of God. This preaching ministry, one more thing about John, is so intense, the revival so widespread, the effect on Israel all the way up to Herod the king who's angry with him, the, the chief priests and the scribes who are examining John the Baptist. He's experiencing spiritual opposition while seeing massive numbers of repentant sinners. As a matter of fact, the other Gospels say all Jerusalem and Judea are coming to him. This is so remarkable, powerful, and significant that they ask him, are you the Christ or not? Is it you, John? Are you the one who we are waiting for? And he says, no. Something far greater is about to happen and come. Someone far greater is about to happen to come. Prepare the way of the Lord. That's the bigger, that's the bigger outline of what is happening here in the text. Now, verse 21 right to the text proper, connects all of that when all the people were baptized, John's preaching, his baptism, the great revival, the crowds around the Jordan River filling the banks, listening to John preaching. All of that is now connected to the moment of the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a few things we often think of this text as the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it really has three distinct elements. Look at the text. It came to pass that also Jesus was baptized. While he prayed, heaven was opened, and the Spirit came, and the Father spoke. We have three things here. We have the baptism of Jesus, the prayer of Jesus, and the supernatural revelation of the glory of the triune God. Baptism, prayer, revelation of divine glory. And we'll study it in that order. First, the baptism of Jesus Christ. Luke is very simple. He says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. I said a moment ago, children, what is baptism? It's the washing with water that is a symbol of the fact that we need to be, for salvation, the only way to be saved is to be 
have our sins washed away. It's an outward sign of what needs to be an inward reality, the work of the Holy Spirit in washing your sins away by applying the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not here a description of the mode of baptism. Here's a little aside for those who are uh, believe that immersion is the only mode of baptism. You need to understand that the way the word baptizo is used in the New Testament is not, it is not used to describe a mode of baptism. It is used to describe the process and the effect of baptism, which is washing for cleansing. In other words, the idea of washing for cleansing, not mode, is in view here. And uh, you see that in Mark chapter 7 and uh, Hebrews chapter 9 that describe the various ceremonial washings of the Old Covenant, which were not necessarily immersions, but the ceremonial purification of things and objects, for example, in the temple and tabernacle. Uh, baptism is in view here as the process of cleansing. It's not mode in view here. It's also, second thing, the word baptism here has the idea of an outward physical sign. And Sometimes my Baptist friends say this, well, Peter, um, you're... We live in the New Covenant in the spiritual age, so we need a spiritual sign. And I have to say, no, it's not a spiritual sign. It's still actually a physical sign. It's water. And we have exactly the same analogy as the Old Covenant where we have circumcision, which is a physical sign that points to a spiritual reality, the need for circumcision of the heart. Here we still have a physical sign that points to the need for a spiritual reality, regeneration, and the changing of the heart within. It's an outward sign of a necessary inward spiritual reality that is needed for salvation. The crowds are coming to be baptized. They understand it to be a picture of cleansing. It's combined with preaching. He's preaching a baptism of repentance. Uh, John is preaching with many exhortations to the people. It reaches their hearts. It penetrates their conscience. They understand their sin and they cry out for cleansing. It's not fully Christian baptism in the sense of what happens after Pentecost with the gift of the Spirit, but it is a prefiguring of and has the same basic meaning. This raises the question, why do we read that Jesus also was baptized? He never sinned. Hebrews 4, Hebrews 7, holy, harmless, undefiled, tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And if he never sinned, he didn't need to be cleansed, did he? So why was he baptized? The Gospel of Matthew, you remember that John didn't want to baptize Jesus. He didn't consider himself worthy. Do you remember what Jesus said? Permit it to be so to fulfill all righteousness. That there was something, the language, when Jesus used the language of the fulfillment, he's saying there's a weight of prior revelation, of truth revealed by God that needs to be fulfilled in me. And when Jesus uses this language, he's conscious that he's come to fulfill Old Testament principles, laws, and types or pictures. There's a clue from what immediately follows the baptism that Jesus understood that this is the beginning of something. And the clue is in this, verse 23. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry as about 30 years of age. 
He's baptized and he begins his ministry. It's a public inauguration. It's a beginning point. It's a public declaration. And it, when, Jesus, when Luke uses the phrase 30 years of age, it links us to some profound Old Testament texts. For example, a priest in Numbers chapter 4, seven times all over, has to be 30 years of age before he becomes a priest. He doesn't begin his mission until 30. A king. 2 Samuel 5 and verse 4, which we studied just a few weeks ago. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Now, perhaps that's not entirely conclusive, but it's indicative that there's a pattern here in the Old Covenant and that there's something of a pattern emerging here at the baptism of Jesus. God is saying something about his son. He's being publicly declared to be the Savior. A second thing is that he's with the people. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. There's a sense in the text that he's identifying here with the sinners all around him. If you think of the scene, there's thousands around that are hearing the word and being baptized, and Jesus is in that crowd, the holy, sinless one, identifying with sinners. He became sin, Paul says to the, in 2 Corinthians. He identifies with them, and he will be their sin-bearer. Ultimately, this water baptism is the anointing of Israel's representative to God, the sin-bearer, and it defines his mission in that work of mediation or representation. I'll say that again. Water baptism is the anointing of Jesus Christ as Israel's representative to God. And it defines his mission in that representation. And already here, J.C. Rao makes this point, we have a very high theology of baptism and its importance in the life of the church. This would be the sign that he would give in the Great Commission. This would be the sign that if you're a member of Christ's church, that marked your entrance into, into that church, the visible church, at least outwardly. And this is the sign that says something about the one who has received it and the mission and purpose of Jesus Christ, which was he came to cleanse sinners, to take our sins and to wash them away. Matter of fact, Paul would say that we are buried with Christ in his baptism and then raised with him to newness of life. That our baptism is connected directly to Jesus' mission of salvation. And here, in a, in a different sense in principle, he's not a sinner, but in the same sense of mission, the baptism is a picture of Jesus' entire mission. And you have to understand that when Christ gave it to the church, it's a means of grace that you would know Christ more. So he is baptized outwardly. Second element. He prayed. Read, he was baptized, and while he prayed. What's the problem of the human heart? Some of you are very used to coming to church on Sunday mornings. and You've had a whole lifetime of doing it, you can't imagine doing anything else. Some of you are newer here. Whatever it is, it's easy to become content with an outward ceremony. Whether it be baptism, or just church attendance, or association with people who call themselves Christians. It was Israel's problem in the Old Covenant. They were good at worshiping outwardly. If you read Isaiah 66, 
God said you could bring your offerings, you could come to the temple, you could do all these things. But what God was looking for was something else. One who is poor and contrite in heart and trembles at God's Word. For whom the outward communication of the Gospel in preaching and in the signs and seals of the covenant was married to an inward heart disposition of love to God. Which is why when Jesus receives the sign, the first thing we find Him doing is praying. The two cannot be separated in the life of our Savior. He lays hold, as it were, of His baptism and He prayed. And what is the promise of our baptism and the promise of baptism? Why did this baptism of repentance Why was it a fitting picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ? We'll get to that in a moment. But at the heart of it is a promise, as in all anointings, of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit Himself, the nearness and blessing of God. And surely David, uh, Jesus knowing Himself to be the Son of David, would remember things like this, that on the very day that David was anointed, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he was praying that as Aaron was anointed, surely, and as David was anointed, as an Elijah was anointed, that this picture and promise of the Holy Spirit of God, which is also contained in Christian baptism, that God would be pleased to give what He had promised. That He, different than us, but in another way, the same as we, that He would be filled as the Man, Christ Jesus, with the Holy Spirit beyond all measure in order to carry out His work of salvation. That He be equipped with the Spirit of God for the mission that He was called to do. He's a model here of the believing heart. He's a model of the believing heart. He's baptized and He prays. He pleads with God. He's the perfect man. He's not satisfied with just outward signs, but he longs for the glory promised in the sign. Second thing, when he prayed, he was praying to God as our mediator. Baptized, anointed, set forth. The first thing Jesus does, the very first action after his public inauguration is praying. Communion with his Father. You think about our Savior, he prayed for this anointing and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And as he did, he prayed for his mission and he prayed for you and for me. He needed his spirit for the mission. He's the second Adam. As God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, Christ now is the inaugurated second Adam, as the mediator, to be filled with the Spirit to execute a mission far greater than Adam's original mission, to lay down his life for the sins of Israel. His mission was not only to be filled with the Spirit, but to give. Do you remember in Numbers chapter 11 what Moses as mediator did? He received the Spirit, and then the Spirit went from him to the 70, and even others in the camp. And you remember Moses longing in prayer when uh, he was called to rebuke those who were prophesying in the camp. Oh, that all my people, all God's people, would be filled with the Spirit. That he, having received the Spirit, the Spirit would flow and fill the people of God. You think of Elisha. 
He saw that Elijah had the special hand of God on him and he wanted a double portion of his spirit. He hungered and longed for the same. If Jesus does not receive the spirit of God as promised in baptism, he will not complete his mission. We will not receive the spirit of God. There will be no salvation. And then think about how Jesus prays, not just generally here, but how he prays for you and for me. We know that he does. When Peter was going to stumble, Luke chapter 22, Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In John 17, verses 9 and 11, Jesus prays, and this is actually the other bookend from this picture here. He prays for his apostles, and then he prays for all those in the world that will come to him. In communion with his Father, he prays for the blessing and help of his Father as mediator by the power of the Spirit, and then he prays also for us. Without that mediation, which begins even here at the moment of his baptism, there is no salvation. Christ prays. And he prays for his mission and for his people. The third element is that God answers. The answer comes in three parts. First, heaven was opened. Heaven is a spiritual realm where the unmitigated glory of God shines now. The Father on the throne, Son at His right hand, the Holy Spirit. When you hear the apostolic greeting from Revelation chapter 1, the seven spirits are before the throne. That's the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. Angels are there. The spirits of just men made perfect are there. It is a perfect realm of resplendent glory over which there is a veil right now like there was a veil over the Holy of Holies in the temple. Christ has pierced that veil and entered into heaven for us now. But it is a real place where there is real glory and the real presence of God. Heaven appears to have windows and doors. You might say, well, what are, you, what are we talking about? Well, at least symbolically in the Bible, there's a way for heaven to be opened. In Malachi, you remember that the Lord said, try me now if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you. Or John in the Revelation, he said, I saw a door opened to heaven. A door in heaven was opened, and as that door opened, the crack opened, the light of the glory of heaven shone on John. And here, Jesus prays, heaven is opened. There's a view like Jacob had. Glory, the Lord on his throne. Heaven itself opens to earth. Ezekiel 1 and verse 1. Heaven was opened while Ezekiel was on the river Kibar. Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was praying, heaven was opened and he saw the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. Heaven was opened when Peter had his vision in Acts chapter 10 and he saw the heavenly lowering and the name, the words rise, Peter kill and eat. And then Revelation 4, 1, a door opened in heaven. And so here, heaven is opened by the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about this, baptism believing prayer for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And even in that moment, the very thing Jesus came to do begins to happen. Heaven is opened. And the glory of God shines. Second thing, the Holy Spirit descends 
in bodily form like a dove upon him. What is outwardly promised and signified in the baptism becomes a visible reality in Jesus praying. The Father answers. And this is again a good analogy of how you should use your own baptism. You have a sign of a, an outward sign, promised attached, the necessary inward reality. For Jesus, the inward reality was to do His mission for us to be saved, to come to salvation. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And He prays and heaven is opened and the Spirit is given and in bodily visible form that we might understand the connection between the sign and the reality that is needed, the full glory of the Spirit of God in view as the Spirit descends like a dove on the mediator. Why a dove? You ever wonder that? It's hard to know. One thing we do know is that there was a moment in Genesis chapter 8 Verse 11, where Noah opened the window and he sent out a dove before he sent it out and it wandered and it came back and then the second time he sent it out and it came back with a, a green leaf. And the green leaf was the promise to Noah that the floodwaters were receding and the judgments of God had been satisfied for the moment by the flood. And here was something of that Old Testament imagery and reality. The Spirit of God in peace and glory, rests on the Son for His ministry of reconciliation and the averting of the judgment of God as if... Well, not as if. Jesus could trust that the floodwaters of judgment would be abated by His work as the mediator. Answer number three. He prayed, heaven was opened, the Holy Spirit descended, and a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son. The angel came to Mary and said, the one who's in your womb will sit on David's throne forever. God had said to David, when that one comes, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. David understood this to be about somebody other than himself. We know that from Psalm 2 when he prophesied of a coming Redeemer, Messiah, of over whom the Father would declare, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. This is the Word of the Father to the Son before the world. This is the Messiah King. This is the Son of David. This is the Savior who has come. And in this world, the ears of humanity heard the God of glory thunder and declare His Son to be the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. In this world, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. In this world, the divine God-man Jesus Christ was baptized, inaugurated, anointed with the Holy Spirit, and enabled for His mission of salvation. We know that it wasn't because of Jesus' sins that He was baptized finally because the Father said, In you, I am well pleased because He had never sinned. It was because of his mission that he was anointed. The whole scene, take a step back for a moment. You know, this week I was, um, this week we had been reading in 1 Kings with our family and uh, my son Sam and I were talking about the building of the temple and I was telling him about the first temple and the second temple and then Herod's 
enlargement of the temple. And I, finally I said, you can see, if you went to Jerusalem, you can still see some of the stones. It's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall of the Temple. And people put little prayers between the rocks, hoping that if they go there at this holy shrine, that God might hear their prayers. We talked about that, and that, that's not a good view of prayer. But aside, I told him that actually about a week ago, and then he said to me yesterday, he said, Dad, can we go on Google Earth and zoom in? Can you show me where that is? So we did. We opened it up, we zoomed in, and we went all the way down from the globe, the whole world, you know, you can spin it, all the way down to street view by the Wailing Wall. This text takes you from the entirety of the Roman Empire to the ministry of John, to the gathering of the baptized and the baptizer at the Jordan River, to Jesus Christ baptized for you. From the broadest all the way down to one singular figure, blessed and visited by the Holy Spirit of God and declared by the Father to be the Son, the Mediator King. From the world to one man, Jesus, with the waters of the Jordan River dripping from Him, the Spirit upon Him, and the Father's commendation. To a moment in human history, maybe you haven't thought much about the baptism of almost unparalleled power and glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one triune and living God, declaring His glory for the purpose of your salvation. Jesus Christ, baptized our Savior. Imagine John preparing for the way of the Lord. The crowds hearing and suddenly witnessing the glory of God. Heaven opened. The Trinity, the God-man standing there, God in the flesh, together with the Holy Spirit and the Father, it really happened. Prepare the way of the Lord. And, and John had said, when they said, maybe you're the Messiah, he said, no, this, it's not me. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. He will judge the whole earth. And now he's appeared. With the glory of the Spirit and of the Father, reverberating across the hills of the wilderness. His servant, the Messiah, has been anointed. As a matter of fact, Jesus will allude to this later on in chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What is happening on the banks of the Jordan, what did happen in history, is the inbreaking of the triune God in history for our redemption. John is gone. His ministry is eclipsed. It's not needed anymore. The one mightier is here. Two things to learn from the sea. Prepare the way of the Lord. If they were to repent in anticipation of the coming and glory of Jesus Christ, if they were to de devote all Israel and all the way up to Herod, the entirety of their existence into holy anticipation of a Redeemer, 
how much more are we in the possession of the Redeemer in the fullness of His glory? A second matter. From the center of the text, the baptism of Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the Spirit and the voice. We still really haven't answered the question, why was Jesus baptized? Not fully. He came to accomplish our cleansing. He was baptized because of our sins that were laid on Him. He took on Him the iniquities of us all. He became sin for us. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, and I quoted it earlier in the sermon in brief, connects our baptism to Christ's work. That baptism is a picture for us of what Christ has done for us. That He died on the cross and that He rose again and that we're united to Him when we're baptized. You see, if we understand the symbol of baptism and its spiritual meaning rightly and correctly, He was baptized for us. As a matter of fact, twice in the Gospels, He asks this question. He anticipates the cross and His suffering as the baptism which the Father will baptize Him with. That when He stepped forward to be baptized, you see, when we step forward to be baptized, what are we saying? When we bring our children to be baptized, what are we saying? Lord, we are a people that need cleansing and it's only found in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ stepped forward to be baptized at the Jordan, He said to the Father, I know You've given me a people that need to be cleansed. And here I am baptized for them. Pointing at the very beginning of His ministry to the end of His ministry. The triune God and His glory and His purpose to save, bracketing everything that Jesus came to do. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the beginning for the purpose of washing your sins away and opening heaven and bringing you to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the cross and in the resurrection accomplishing everything that was promised in the original baptism of Jesus for you. The cross is already in view at the Jordan. And Jesus in stepping forward says, I embrace the mission. I will go to the cross. Father, give me your spirit. And it's at that point the Father says, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. This is the glory of our Savior. What did He come to do? Not only to cleanse us, to bring us to that glory. John 17. The glory that you see at the baptism, for a moment. Father, I pray that they may be with me and with you in that glory that I had with you before the world was. All of this wrapped up in the baptism of Jesus Christ for us. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we see your glory again shining. We see you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune and eternal. We see our mediator stepping forth to embrace his mission praying for your divine sustaining help as the God-man, the Spirit descending on him without measure that he might accomplish his mission and give us the Spirit. 
And you the Father, who so loved the world, you did not spare your own Son, but you gave Him up for us all. And you were well pleased in Him. And we thank you for Him who was baptized for us, that we might be baptized in Him. Lord, we pray that we would not be content with the outwardness of these promises or the ceremonies you have given us to remind us of the promises, but that we would be a praying, repentant, and believing people, always looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen. We go now with God's blessing. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. Amen.